Welcome to this edition of Fraud Talk. Today, we're joined by Jack Little, a senior lecturer of accounting at the Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell University. He'll be speaking with us about a false vendor fraud scheme. Welcome, Jack. Thanks for talking with us today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a senior lecturer of accounting in the Dyson School of Cornell University right here in Ithaca, New York. I teach financial accounting classes. I teach a fraud examination class. I'm a certified public accountant, a certified fraud examiner. I've been practicing for uh, coming up on 40 years, teaching for 30-something. I'm kind of a practitioner that has turned into an educator somewhere along the line. As part of my fraud examination class, uh, we, we study and uh, examine fraud cases that uh, happen in central New York. Now, some of those are done from a historical uh, viewpoint, you know, things that have happened that we've already looked at in other classes, but we also touch on any, anything new that comes about since my last class. This particular uh, case that we're going to talk about today is, is very current. It, it just is wrapped up in the courts and was a, uh, a, a byproduct of my class with my research partner, Jason Grossman. We, you know, we felt this one was particularly interesting and uh, wanted to share it. Okay, great. It's a case involving the Tompkins County Consolidated Area Transit. Can you tell us exactly what that is? The Tompkins County Area Transit, which is uh, referred to as TCAT here in town, is our uh, local transit uh, uh, system. Um, it uh, covers the uh, city of Ithaca, Tompkins County, uh, and all of Cornell University. Historically, those organizations each ran their own transit system. In uh, 1992, they decided to start sharing services. By 2005, they actually all merged together into one corporate entity, uh, a not-for-profit organization uh, under uh, 501C of the Internal Revenue Code, and have been operating under, under that for the last, uh, you know, how many, 15 years. Okay, and how are they funded? They're funded pretty, pretty much as transit authorities are. Uh, it's a mix of federal funding, state funding, local grants and contracts, uh, they uh, get a contribution uh, from Cornell University because there's a lot of ridership comes from that. Uh, and Cornell is trying to uh, reduce the, the traffic of cars on the campus, so they, uh, they, you know, they're promoting bus traffic. Uh, and then, you know, obviously there's a ridership as well. Okay, and do you happen to know about how many people they employ? They do. Uh, I think it's about 120 uh, individuals at this time. So... It's one of those individuals that carried out this fraud scheme, correct? Exactly right. Can you tell me a bit about who this was and what she did and as her duties day to day and how that translated into eventually her fraud scheme? So the woman's name was Pamela Johnson. Uh, she was a, an accounts assistant, so she was a, an account clerk. Uh, her responsibility was to uh, manage the accounts payable system, uh, pay all the bills. Uh, she was able to go in and create a fictitious vendor. Uh, and she uh, named this vendor uh, uh, a name very close to her husband's business entity's name. She created fictitious uh, invoices. Uh, she was able to pay those invoices through the accounts payable system. Uh, she had access to a signature stamp, so she was able to uh, get the checks signed. She cut the checks, had them signed. Uh, deposited them into that business account and was able to access the accounts, um, you know, the money from those accounts. Uh, 
in uh, in total, it was a $247,000 fraud. How long did this scheme take um, place? It took place over four years. So it, it started in 2010 and went through 2013. So as you look at the numbers, uh, in, in 2010, I mean, just in round numbers, so it's a $1,600 de- defalcation. So, you know, not a big number. In uh, 2011, uh, it jumped up to $43,000, uh, followed by 69000 in 2012, and then $113,000 in 2013. Okay, wow. So it just kept exponentially increasing. Growing and growing. Uh, how was the fraud discovered? It was discovered during the audit process for the 2013 year. So it was in March of uh, 2014, the external auditors were um, uh, doing their their audit as they do every year uh, and a staff accountant who was uh, just doing his job uh, was vouching some disbursements and happened to pick a uh, an invoice from this um, uh, Johnson tool design um, uh, is one of his uh, uh, invoices to look at uh, Pamela Johnson was uh, uncooperative about uh, pulling that invoice or pulling out that file. Ultimately, the uh, staff accountant went to the purchasing manager and said, hey, uh, you know, I'm not getting these uh, invoices. Can you look into it for me? Uh, the purchasing manager, of course, had never heard of the, uh, of the vendor and, and was concerned. Uh, a little bit of digging, they determined that it was indeed a fictitious vendor. Uh, with a lot more digging, they realized they had a big fraud on their hands of $247,000. Uh, ultimately, you know, she was uh, interviewed and suspended, and police were called, and there was a, uh, you know, investigation and, and everything forward like you think there would be. Why do you think that the, the fraud went unnoticed for four years? Well, I think it's mostly volume. Um, as I said earlier, the TCAT's budget's uh, $13 million dollars. So when you have a $1,600 fraud in amongst uh, you know, 12, 13 million, it's, it's not apt to be discovered. Even uh, in the next couple of years when it's 40,000 and 60,000, in the grand scheme, it's, it's uh, uh, perhaps not material. By 2013, uh, she had gotten a little bolder and was taking larger sums and, and more often. Same time that the fraud became material, it was discovered in that audit process. What exactly do you mean by the fraud becoming material? Well, uh, materiality, when we talk about financial statement audits and financial statements in general, is a, a term we use to say how, how wrong, how misstated, how incorrect um, do the financial statements need to be before someone is misguided by them. If a financial statement is wrong, if it's wrong off by $1, no one would say, Oh, geez, I was misled. It was off a dollar. But as that dollar grows bigger and bigger, there comes a tipping point where uh, someone might make a different decision uh, on that financial statement than they would have otherwise. So this is something that's an auditor's judgment. Um, you know, materiality is, is based on the auditor's judgment in the end. But we have um, guidance that uh, is provided to us, both in our um, you know, auditing standards and, and uh, 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 guidance that's published and how we go about fulfilling this, uh, these requirements. TCAT is not a client of mine. It, it was uh, uh, actually years ago, many years ago, it was a client of mine, but not, not currently. It's uh, been a long time. Um, 
but I do have some uh, background with the organization. So I went ahead and, and took the guidance and the financial statements and sat down and said, okay, if, if I were the auditor, where would I peg materiality to be in these circumstances? And I came up with a range of, say, between 115000 and 135000 for the 2013 year. So uh, the early years were clearly outside of materiality. Uh, by 2013, it, it probably was indeed uh, misstating the financial statements, and luckily that was the year that it was found. We have to understand that our thought for fraud and what might be material is probably different than for financial statement purposes. When we say, you know, how much fraud is too much in financial statements, I, I, I hope we come to the conclusion that, well, probably none, right? Uh, we yeah. don't think any frauds uh, okay. But with uh, financial statements, we have to, we have to set some uh, scope to it and say, uh, based on a certain dollar amount, is it errors or whether it be fraud, uh, there becomes a point where it becomes material. And would you say that this materiality, just for someone who isn't an auditor or deals with financial statements, is it like the red flag of fraud in the auditing um, world? I, I hope the red flag of fraud is actually far below materiality for financial statement purposes. What, what we would tolerate for uh, misstatements in a financial statement is one thing. What we would tolerate for fraud going on is probably a much, I would hope, a much smaller number. Interesting. The fraud was discovered by the external auditing uh, team or the auditor and then the county district attorney's office handled the case from there. Can you tell us a bit how they handled the case after sure. it was discovered? So after it was discovered, there was uh, an investigation. The external auditors did some work and, and quantified it. TCAT brought in a forensic expert out of uh, another city, and uh, they did some additional work and came to the exact same conclusion as to the amount of what the defalcation was. Uh, the district attorney was uh, was uh, involved. Uh, he, of course, interviewed uh, everybody and uh, took statements from, from everyone, brought that information to the grand jury, uh, and ob obtained an indictment against Pamela for um, grand larceny in the second degree. Um, it, uh, it took over a year, but there was... Um, ultimately a plea bargain. It didn't go to trial. There was a, a plea bargain arrangement. Uh, she was sentenced to uh, 90 days in county jail, so she's actually in jail now. Uh, 90 days of house arrest, uh, five years of probation, uh, and restitution of the amounts taken. Uh, and this is where it becomes particularly interesting because um, I think our uh, district attorney's office is uh, really sharp because uh, when, when the whole investigation started and they uh, did their background research, they determined that uh, Pamela and her husband um, had some assets, uh, some net worth personally, um, and they uh, approached the court for um, what is referred to as an ex-part uh, order of attachment. Um, so essentially what they did is they asked the court to freeze all those assets so they couldn't be disposed of uh, while the court, the court made its decision on uh, how it was going to proceed. When it came to the plea bargain, there were assets that uh, could be sold and realized so that the restitution could be assured. And in this particular case, there was 100% restitution. The fraud triangle is always a hot topic 
amongst the members of our organization and just in general when it comes to discovering why people commit fraud. And in, the, in this case, would you say that the elements of the fraud triangle were evident? Uh, yes, uh, and I concur the fraud triangle is a, a very important thing. Uh, when, when I'm teaching my class, uh, really everything we're doing in these case studies we're looking at is we're trying to identify elements of the fraud triangle. If, if when you have students and you're getting them to think in that manner, uh, it's a very powerful tool uh, to get them to understand not only what happened, but perhaps why it happened. If you can understand why something happens, you're you know halfway to fixing it. Uh, it's it's very important. The uh, uncharitable pressure for Pamela Johnson was that she has a, a gambling addiction. Um, she uh, was spending every waking moment she could uh, at a gambling casino. Uh, her habit had spun kind of out of control uh, to the point where she had gambled away all of her you know, personal liquid assets and had moved on to uh, TCAT funds to uh, uh, you know, make her uh, satisfy her addiction. The opportunity in this uh, case was uh, a breach of internal controls. Uh, she should never have been able to set up uh, a new vendor in that accounts payable system without approval from up the food chain somewhere. Uh, somebody should have had to uh, either create it for her or approve the process. No way should she have access to a signature stamp that resided right in her desk drawer. Um, with those two things um, you know, uh, available to her, it's a dangerous combination to have that kind of access and, and a signature stamp. Um, as far as her rationalization, it's, uh, that has not come out or is, is not clear, at least not as yet. Uh, with gambling addictions, it's, it's uh, usually the perpetrator thinks that, uh, uh, you know, they just borrowed the money and when they hit it big, they're going to pay it all back. Um, and, of course, they never hit it back, hit it big or never pay it back. Do you have any tips or advice you can give to other auditors or fraud examiners about how to spot this type of fraud? Uh, I, I do. I have, um, I have a few tips, I think. And I, I think I would start even with a... Uh, broader, uh, uh, not just uh, fraud auditors, but to uh, board members of organizations and, and management. Um, I think it's. Uh, I, I think everybody understands that there just seems to be a rash of these kind of frauds that are going on. Uh, every every article you pick up is talking about them. There seems to be a lot of this going on in small and medium-sized organizations, uh, local governments. Uh, fire districts, uh, youth programs, uh, the baseball league, uh, the youth student unions. I mean, uh, one thing after another, it seems. I think it's essential for uh, all of these kind of entities to have a strong anti-fraud program. It really needs to be a three-part process, uh, deterrence, detection, and response. Uh, when we talk about deterrence, we're talking about everything from how they set the tone at the top of the organization, um, how they develop uh, their written policies that, uh, that outline uh, fraud prevention, um, their internal controls, uh, and some kind of um, uh, prevention program that is, uh, that is uh, educational in nature, that they're able to educate board, management, and staff on what their program's all about. As far as deterrence, they, um, they have to know how they're going to go about investigating a fraud. This particular, this particular fraud 
uh, probably could have been prevented uh, by simply having better controls. You know, with detection, uh, the, the monitoring, auditing, uh, all the procedures for uh, how we deal with misconduct needs to be, to be written down and summarized. Uh, there has to be a response policy. You know, what happens when you find something? You know, how do we investigate? How do we report out? Who do we report to uh, when there's an alleged fraud? It's just so important that these kind of things get laid out and considered uh, long before you have a problem. Uh, it shouldn't be a reaction. It should be, um, you know, preventive in nature. So I also have a, a, some advice to staff auditors. Um, like this young man who, uh, who found this fraud, um, be diligent in your follow-through. It's easy to just kind of look the other way and press forward with the rest of your work. Um, you got to follow up on those items in question. You have to uh, be diligent. Um, the, uh, uh, this guidance needs to be part of our training programs. Uh, we need to be reinforcing this. Our supervisors of, of audits need to be reinforcing it with the staff. Uh, we have to make sure that there's adequate time built into these time budgets uh, so that uh, staff members feel they have the time to be diligent. Uh, that can be a problem in and of its well. For the auditors that are responsible for planning the audit engagements, um, uh, you know, remember that we are guided by AU 312, which is the audit risk and materiality in conducting an audit. Uh, that's our uh, auditor's guidance on, on this. Uh, it requires our auditors plan our audits to be reasonably sure that financial statements are free and clear of material misstatements. Um, and these material misstatements can be either caused by fraud or just by an error. Um, you know, with TCAT, um, it's, it's just not possible to, to tell whether this uh, finding this fraud in the year that it became material uh, was, you know, great audit planning or was it just plain luck. Um, but it's nice to think that maybe somebody did their job well and, and um, you know, the right outcome came about. Final tip I'd say for uh, board management and staff, um, watch for unusual behaviors uh, with your coworkers. Uh, I don't know what happened to TCAT, but it's my understanding that Pamela Johnson was spending every available moment she had um, in this casino. Uh, did this just go unnoticed by everyone, um, or was the uh, behavior pretty evident and just nobody reached out to help her. That's a good tip. That's a good final tip there. Thanks so much, Jack, for talking to us today. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you'll join us for the next installment of Fraud Talk. You can find additional podcasts at acfe.com slash podcast. This is Emily Primo signing off.